Zoom in on global affairs with insightful debates and exclusive interviews. This is World Insight. Hello and welcome to World Insight with me, Tian Wei. Efforts have been made to keep China-U.S. relations on track with follow-ups to the November meeting between the Chinese and the U.S. presidents in San Francisco. The latest Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi had, quote, candid substantive talks with U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan in Bangkok over the weekend. These efforts are built on decades-long vibrant business and cultural exchanges between the world's top two economies. At the business front is Ray Dalio, the founder of the asset management firm Bridgewater. How have these exchanges transformed China-U.S. relations through the decades? As a leading business person, what does he think of the current challenges and opportunities? Ray, I really wonder what is uh, the nature of curiosity these days from the business community about China, for example, reflected in your work? Of course, there's been changes in China in a way where the business community is concerned about the conflict between the United States and China. And I would say that last March it reached its worst point, and that was a terrible, terrible time. And it's made improvements since then. In other words, both sides recognizing that a terrible economic war or a terrible military war would be terrible. And so that there's now a better amount of talking. And I think it'll be important for the world to hear him and then also um, to continue to paint the picture of China's role in the world as a peaceful, productive party in the world. Mm, do you think people will be convinced? I think actions will be important over a period of time. People, I think, sometimes come with their stereotypes. They don't know China well. I've been lucky. I've been going since 1984, so I know China pretty well. But still, there are questions. So I think over a period of time, it's more a matter of the actions that are taken. Now, since the meeting between the two presidents in San Francisco last year, we see both sides have drawn up some specific to-do list, and they're trying to deliver. So far, so good. So far, so good. Yeah. Uh, however, uh, this is an interesting year, 2024. You have in the United States one of the most eye-catching elections, and you have in China an economic transformation where people are asking about the economic growth. So how do you see these two events in two very different countries working on the bilateral relations? I believe the elections in the United States are one of the greatest risks for the world because the United States is internally having a great conflict between values um, and that's brought about populism and there's a rather extremism that's operating there so that neither side will accept losing or subjugating themselves to the other side. This election is going to be a question for democracy. Can democracy work it out? Can the United States work together or will the factions break it apart? And for China, of course, as I mentioned, uh, there is an economic transition to put it into a, a diplomatic phrase. So how do you see the adjustment of its economic uh, uh, potential 
is now working on the relationship between China and the United States. There is an immediate uh, problem that has taken place because of the uh, real estate problem, caring to the local government financial problem. Those problems are manageable, if well managed well. There might be forms of restructuring, they need monetary policy and the like. They have an effect on people's attitudes and their willingness to spend money and so on. That's of course an, an issue. And then there's the international issue, international conflict with the United States. The, um, the problem with that is also a, a problem from the U.S. perspective. Foreign investors or foreign com companies worry about being sanctioned in China. So it might be actions that could come from either the U.S. side or can come from the Chinese side. And then there's still the remarkable development of Chinese technologies and Chinese productions. Look at the leadership that's taking place and wind and uh, electric vehicles and uh, even the, the development of uh, the chip race. Um, you know, that's an American-Chinese competition and it's really quite remarkable how effective that is. But of course, that also in the competitor's view represents a risk so you look at marketplaces, Europe, will electric vehicles, what will the roles be, and so on. So those competitions are going on, and how they're handled, I think, will be really important. Now, you hosted earlier an interaction with Mr. Liu Jianchao, one of the uh, very prominent Chinese ministers of the Chinese Communist Party. And I'm sure you have, with that closed-door session, interact about Chinese diplomacy, the goals of diplomacy, vis-a-vis -vis economic development. Tell me more about what is the takeaway from that meeting. How is it interact with what you just explained to me and analyzed about U.S.-China? The main thing that he and I were both hoping to accomplish is to create a mutual understanding. That doesn't mean an agreement about what should be, but to try to eliminate misunderstandings because they're very dangerous. And he was remarkable in being able to be so open. He said, give me your toughest questions, whatever they might be. Let's discuss any of them. And he was really remarkable in having those exchanges. Uh, I think there, there are questions. There, they may seem impolite, but if the United States, if he asks the United States, how could we trust in the stability of our relationship when the politics is so volatile. Okay, questions that, and then back and forth in terms of those delicate questions. That is um, really bringing about an understanding. So uh, that was something I was very, very pleased to see. He made a big impression in the United States. Quality communications, so crucial these days. Seeing it through the other's eyes, not seeing it through one's own eyes, which could be biased. And then agreeing that there are certain terrible things that must not happen. What might be your concern for the next biggest challenge as you see today? Well, uh, as I say, when I combine the risk of the internal conflict in the United States with the risk of the external conflict, that opens all sorts of types of economic uh, risks as well as political. The costs of war the United States being overextended in some places um, and how that works out. Spreading of war in the Middle East, spreading of war in other places that create great disruptions.
And then, of course, we have this climate issue, which is, a bit, is going to be very costly. I think in 24, it's that, that confluence. And then red lines. We're so close to red lines. Let's say if we were to take the Taiwan issue. Okay, we're very close to red lines with the Taiwan issue. We're close to red lines in a number of areas. What does the chip war look like? How do sanctions work? All of those. So it's dangerously close to those red lines. I think wisdom will prevail, but this is an environment where accidents also could happen. What would be the best advice? Yeah, the mutual understanding and, and, and being realistic. You know, Chinese concept of war, since the art of war was written, is that you should never win a war through military fighting because that's so painful and you're, you must not have been clever enough to win the war through military destructive. I would say if we take that kind of war or if we take a terrible economic war and we realize that we should be clever to be able to compete mm -hmm. intensely. Technology is an interesting factor. Uh, as we know, this year's uh, annual meeting focused so much on artificial intelligence. This is also a competition we see between China and the United States. Now, how do you see these uh, technology factors, especially artificial intelligence, likely to play here? Well, throughout history, we've seen whoever wins the technology war, wins the economic war, and wins, wins the military war. So from both sides, it's very, very important that they do the best to win. They also recognize the threats that might come from those technologies. So in an ideal world, you'd have cooperation, but that, re that reality prevails. So, um, so now what you're seeing is that uh, a chess game playing. What technology and who and will I prevent it and what will I mean for the countries that are in between? Will they be able to use it? And what sanctions will develop and so on? And then how do they get around those sanctions? And then so you see it where let's say Chinese companies will then go set up uh, companies that are not Chinese companies, not run by Chinese uh, and then they'll compete and so on. I think in this world today, it's very difficult to control all of those things. But that's the nature of what the war is like. You have been, over the years, especially on China-U.S. relations, being the vocal minority. How do you see can be the role of you to wake up those unvocal majorities? I think people are sometimes too vocal in saying, I believe this is right and that's right. And I think it's not so much to take sides. One shouldn't take sides. One should understand instead the mechanics of how things work and then understand how each side is taking advantage of the, their opportunities and then working in a way so that uh, that can be done to produce the best outcome for the whole. So I would expect that uh, um, I'm not taking sides. I've come to understand the benefits and, and some of the problems that China faces. And, and I work for that better good of the interaction so there could be learnings and appreciations. There's so much in the Chinese culture that we could learn about. It's, a, it's such a great culture. To learn about and consider it doesn't mean to accept that alternative way of life. Ray. Thank you. This is World Insight, still to come.
hopes on the younger generation in China and the United States to fix trust issues. The reasons from Harvard Law Professor Michael Sandel. Next. Beyond the Beyond the headlines. This is World Insight. Welcome back. This is World Insight. I'm Tian Wei. Amid tensions in an increasingly polarized world, the younger generation have the strongest motivation to mend the rift. That's especially true for young Chinese and American students who seek to bridge the global gap. Professor Michael Sandel, who teaches government theory at Harvard Law School, says the younger generation long for change. Here's my conversation with him. Professor Sandel, what a pleasure to have a reunion after yes. years. Yes, it's great to be with you again. Yeah. I've seen you're very productive in bringing different opinions together. I mean, you've been studying politics from perspective of ethics and also philosophy. Let me ask you, recently we see so-called debates about artificially designed the so-called ideological divide in our world. How do you, as a professor, see these kind of debates? I think we need to get beyond the rhetoric and have real dialogue. What is the rhetoric? What is real dialogue to you? Well, what real dialogue is to me is bringing people together, especially young people, the, the rising generation, university students, from different countries, uh -huh. from different backgrounds, to reason together, to discuss together big ethical questions that matter. We've done some experiments with this recently with NHK where we brought together groups of students from China, Japan, and the United States. Crowd. Some of my students at Harvard, some students from Fudan University, in some of the programs from Qinhua. Yeah. We brought them together to discuss controversial ethical questions, but in a serious way. Like what? Well, not hurling rhetoric. For example, we did one program on gender, uh, gender equality and inequality, mm -hmm. and all of the issues and debates around gender inequality. We did another program on the intense competition for admission to top universities mm -hmm. to score well on exams, the emphasis on cram courses, and the advantages enjoyed by those from well-off families who mm -hmm. can provide those resources, and how, how do they compare the experiences they've had right. with those of their colleagues. We did one on democracy. What does democracy really mean? And it was interesting, the students from Japan and China and the United States had different views, but they were listening to one another and responding to one another uh, in ways that went well beyond ideology and rhetoric. That's very important because sometimes these are just ideological narratives without real discussion. Uh, but how do you see you know, culture where these students are coming from actually play a role in their concepts of understanding all these abstract concepts. Right. I think there is, and you mentioned, a kind of hardening, ideological hardening of positions if we look at the headlines or if we watch cable news channels. But I think when it comes uh, to actually discussing these issues in a serious way, especially with university-age students, there is a great hunger, I think, in all of our countries, in all of our societies, for a better kind of public discourse, a better kind of dialogue that goes deeper, that listens to those uh, who come from different backgrounds and tries to work out what those differences amount to. And oftentimes, their disagreements 
within the groups of students from particular countries right. and surprising areas of agreement across the different countries. Right. But we can't know until we try. Mm. So what you're saying, no matter what the topic is, yeah. even it could be so-called RD, so-called ideological divide. Right. We need to sit down and talk to one another. Yes. So the most important thing is not talk, but also listen. Yes. Listening is one of the most important civic arts, the art of listening. It's more than just hearing the words right. that another person What speaks. is it about then? Well, what it's about is listening attentively to try to figure out the principles, the moral convictions lying behind the position or the argument that a person makes, especially if that's someone with whom we disagree. Sympathetic listening is, I think, a lost civic art, and we need to revive it. We need to revive it uh, in very concrete conversations. And we've done these experiments, which have been broadcast, and, and some of them available online, right. as a way of showing there is a better way of engaging in dialogue. But 2024, of course, is a tumultuous year, uh, Professor. Uh, many elections going on in the world, including election in your home country, the yes. United States. Uh, but we don't see these days in the political debates right. much content related to what you have just said. Pretty much political narratives and rhetorics. Yes. So what's going on with our politics? Well, we live in polarized times. The polarization we find uh, between countries in the geopolitical competition that you've described and that's been heating up and hardening in some ways. We also find the polarization, certainly we do in the United States, within our politics, within our society as we see the current presidential primaries unfolding on the Republican side. And so the question is, have people already made up their minds what they think? Or is there room for some coming together, some reasoning together, reasoning about our differences and disagreements, yeah. taking seriously one another, showing civility and mutual respect? Because these are conditions, and the listening we were talking about can produce a kind of mutual respect that is often missing from the hardened, contentious, polarized debates. Is the second choice still available? The second choice, meaning yeah, you, reasoned yes, uh, uh, dialogue based on yeah. mutual respect. Uh, is it still possible? I think it still is possible. What I'm, is pointing to that optimism? Well, uh, here I would distinguish, Tian, between optimism and hope. It's very hard to be optimistic these days in the face of the intense uh, divisions and polarizations that we see on the world stage and within societies. But I do have hope, I do have hope that we can build genuine dialogue, that we can recover the art of listening if we set about it. And what gives me the hope is not listening to the elites or to the political leaders or the politicians or the political parties. What, because they're stuck, I think, in these... Their own uh, cocoons. I, I think so. Mm -hmm. I, but what does give me hope is listening to young people, the younger generation. Yeah. There is a hunger for something better, something deeper. What I've tried to do is to uh, seize that opportunity, mm -hmm. to engage 
young people in dialogue in large settings and in small settings to see if we can begin to build mutual understanding. Professor Sandel, you were one of the early birds, if I could use that word to describe you, were warning people about the issue of justice. And now, years later, look at what we have, divide and also gap. Now, how do you see the discussion about justice still relevant today? Can that really happen? Well, I think what's happened since we first began these discussions and, uh, is that the divide between uh, so-called winners and losers has been deepening. Absolutely. And the gap, it has partly to do with the growing gap of income and wealth between rich and poor. But now it's in some ways made even worse by the fact that there have been changing attitudes towards success that have accompanied the widening inequalities. Those who've landed on top have come to believe that their success is their own doing, proof of their merit, it's kind of hubris, and that those who struggle must deserve their fate too. Maybe they just don't work hard enough. But the system of globalization that's been played out over the last four decades has reinforced and contributed to the widening uh, uh, gaps of income and wealth. So I think we need to, to have a serious debate both about the shape of the economy right. and about the attitudes towards success by which we interpret the places we land. We need to have a serious discussion about the ethical issues, including issues not only of who should get what, but also questions of hubris and humility. I think one of the reasons we just saw the, uh, the entrenched positions in the American election, one of the reasons so many Americans are, are drawn to Donald Trump, regardless of criminal charges against him, is they feel that he stands up to the elites who look down on them. Many working people feel that. And when working people feel looked down upon by elites, when they feel that the work they do is not respected, yeah. that it lacks dignity, that adds to the sense of anger and resentment and grievance. So I think we need to broaden the debate to include questions of hubris and humility, mm -hmm. questions of anger and resentment, and how are they connected right. to the widening inequalities as well as to the attitudes of elites toward those less fortunate than themselves. Since you already mentioned virtues, yes. let me continue on that path just yeah. a little bit. Now, you've been doing research about meritocracy. Yes. As you know, it has a lot to do with people's concepts of virtues. Right. Uh, for example, with Confucianism. Yes. That's just one of those many examples in the world. So tell me more about how meritocracy, the latest version, when right. you are researching and discussing right. with relevant parties. Well, my, my recent book is on meritocracy, the tyranny of merit is the book. And it's paradoxical to speak of merit as a kind of tyranny because normally we think of merit as a good thing. If I need a surgeon, I want a well-qualified surgeon to perform it. That's merit. Merit is good in that sense. But merit has become a kind of tyranny because of this tendency of elites to look down. Now, traditionally, meritocracy, going back to Confucius, and also in the West to Plato and Aristotle, the idea that those who govern should have merit meant that they should have virtue, that they should have character, that they should set a moral example. Mm -hmm. So meritocracy in governing was connected to virtue. 
today, when we talk about meritocracy, very often it's detached from any notion of virtue. The idea is that heads of companies, or for that matter of political parties and governments, that they need technocratic merit, expertise. Now, technocratic expertise is important, but it's not the whole of merit, because unless it's connected to a concern for the common good, unless it's connected to the idea of cultivating virtue among citizens and also among leaders, then meritocracy loses its moral core, its moral heart. So one of my arguments in, in, the, is in the tyranny of merit is that we need to reconnect the idea of merit to the idea of virtue, moral character, and the common good. That's Professor Michael Sandel from Harvard University. That's all the time we have for today. I'm Tian Wei on behalf of the team. Thanks for being with us. Bye for now.